Well, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. I hope you were able to grab an outline. This is the second part of our study of actually Hebrews 8 through the middle of chapter 10. Uh, It's a large chunk of scripture, but it's one flowing argument that he's making here. And some people would even say the whole book of Hebrews is, is a sermon, something like a sermon. It's a little different than many of the other New Testament uh, epistles that you read. But we're going to start here. We're not going to read chapter 8 again, but we'll refer back to it once I get going here. And chapter 9 is where we will begin. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now, you remember last week, I'll stop right there for just a moment, uh, the author of Hebrews is here telling us about the excellencies of Jesus' ministry as a great high priest. And last week, we looked at that first point that Jesus' ministry is superior because he is the mediator of the new covenant, which is superior to the old covenant. He was making that comparison Moses mediated the old covenant, but Jesus ushers in a new covenant that has better promises. We'll be thinking a lot about those promises today. Promises of a new heart, a personal relationship with God, mercy, and forgiveness. So we're thinking today about two other things that he's about to mention here. The fact that Jesus' ministry as a high priest is superior because he ministers in the heavenly places... And he presents a full and final sacrifice there. Let us continue on verse 2. For a tent, or a tabernacle, was prepared the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption." For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes only effect at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of the blood there is no forgiveness of sins." Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has made, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning.
Well, I had the privilege of conducting a wedding this weekend, and the young couple were scheduled to be married in March of 2020. And, of course, the pandemic hit. The young man is in the Air Force. He was uh, trapped within 90 miles of his base in Columbus, Georgia. The wedding was supposed to take place in Baton Rouge. And so the wedding uh, celebration was called off. Good thing is they went ahead and got married at the courthouse, and they planned to have uh, another wedding, kind of their religious wedding, this weekend, and it was a joy to do that and to be a part of it. And you would think that uh, having been married a year in reality, that the ceremony this weekend wouldn't be quite as special, but that was not the case at all. It was such a delight to see them. It was as if they'd never been married at all as they made their promises to one another and, and as they exhibited their love and the way that they responded to my questions to them and their vows to one another. It was just a delight to be a part. And it reminded me that the uh, promises of the new covenant that the writer of Hebrews has been talking about here, uh, a marriage ceremony pictures those promises. If you look back at chapter 8, verse 10, the writer of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah. He says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God. And they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So three things there that are promised, and we went over this last week, but first, uh, a new heart. And in a, in a wedding, uh, you really do get a new heart uh, because, as it says in Genesis, the two become one flesh. So you've, you each had your own heart, and once you're united together, or each had your own heart, and once you're united, you're united together, you're one flesh, one heart. You're supposed to be uh, united in that way. And it also talks about knowing one another. Uh, There's a lot of difference between being engaged and being married. And uh, once you're married to someone, you know them in in some ways more than you want to know them. Uh, You see some of the things that have been hidden from your sight for a long time. But you really get to know someone when you live with them and you're married to them. And then... Mercy and forgiveness. One of the things that they did that was unique, I'd never seen it done before, but they had a foot washing ceremony during the the service. And uh, the bride and groom washed one another's feet as a symbol of their commitment to serve and love sacrificially to one another. And that means, of course, that they're going to be forgiving one another and being merciful towards one another and loving and kind to one another. Well, of course, marriage is a picture of the relationship Christ has with his church where he gives us a new heart. We're united to him. He, he uh, writes his law upon our heart. He, he uh, is in a personal relationship with us. We can know him intimately. And, of course, he offers us mercy and forgiveness. So we have all these promises of, of the new covenant, and uh, that's what we talked about last week. Well, today we want to look at those second two the second and third point uh, in the outline that I gave you, 
And the first thing that we see here that he's talking about is that Jesus' ministry takes place in a superior sanctuary compared to the tent, the tabernacle, that was, uh, was, was set up during the time of Moses when Moses was given the law. If you look back at the beginning of chapter 8, we see uh, the point that he's making in this whole argument. The point, he says, and what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So Jesus is a minister in the holy places, and we'll talk more about this as we go along, but that holy place is the very presence of God. In the tabernacle and later the temple, the holy of holies was the place where God's presence was seated. And, and, and that was where God dwelt, in a sense. And Jesus now is in the very presence of God. Not in the temple made with hands, not in the tabernacle that Moses made, or had made, but in heaven itself, where he's seated continually at the right hand of the Father, in that true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Because the tabernacle was just a copy of the heavenly realities. He tells us that in chapter 8, verse 5. They, the Levitical priesthood, the Mosaic priesthood, served a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. That pattern that was shown was a pattern of the realities. And the tabernacle is just a, an image of it. It's a copy. It's a shadow. It's not the real thing. You know, we obviously have shadows everywhere. And you look at a shadow and you can tell what it is sometimes, usually. If it's a tree. Uh, you can tell, oh, that's a, that's a shadow of a tree. It's not the tree, it's just the shadow. The same way the tabernacle is not the reality, it's just the shadow of the reality. But the, but the true heavens, the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, where Christ ministers, is the reality. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. He talks about this copy and tells us about it. And uh, maybe you're familiar with how things worked in the Old Testament. Maybe you're not. I'm going to try to make it simple. But he tells us there in the first seven verses about the fact that the tent was set up and it had courts in it. So the very center was the Holy of Holies. And, and uh, only the high priest went in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. And then there was outer courts where people could come and once you get the temple developed, later on you see those courts, courts of the Gentiles, courts of women, uh, the court of the Israelites, and then you're getting closer into the Holy of Holies, and there was a limit to how far you could go. But only the high priest went into the very center once a year on the Day of Atonement. And there were sacrifices that were made outside of the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, Throughout the year, when you uh, needed to make an offering or a sacrifice, that's where those were offered. And the point that he makes about this shadow or copy of the heaven re heavenly reality is that the tabernacle really didn't grant people access to God. Look at verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section 
is still standing. That word section is the same word as tent and, can, and refers to the tabernacle. He, he, he speaks, uh, if you're looking at the Greek, he speaks, they're, they're trying to do a, a job of interpreting this into ways that we can understand it. But his argument, uh, he uses the word tent a lot in this, and we translate it in different ways according to the context. But what he's saying, and if we just sum it up, and I'm not going to try to give you the complicated exegesis of it, is that holy place is where God's presence is. And as long as that you're trying to, you know, as long as it's walled off by that tent, uh, no one's really enjoying the presence of God. The only person that's going there is the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. So the normal everyday follower of God, Israelite, did not have direct access to God, did not know God, really knew more about God than maybe the Philistines or the Hittites or some of these other people that did not have God's law, but yet they did not have that close contact with God. You see certain individuals throughout the Old Testament who have God appear to them, like Moses who spoke face to face as we saw very early in the the book of Hebrews, but that was rare, only a handful of individuals. But on the great side of this argument is that Christ does provide full access to God. Look at verse 11 of chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, that is the heavenly places, heaven itself, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He entered once for all into the holy places. And he hasn't left those places. He is seated in those places. He ever dwells there to intercede for us there before the Father. Isn't that wonderful? Look at verse 24 of chapter 9. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The presence of God on our behalf. Jesus is there for us. He is ministering there for us. Isn't that wonderful? If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have putting your trust in Him, if He is your Savior and your Lord, then He is right now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you, praying for you, advocating for you. And we can have access and a relationship with God because we, as believers, are united to Christ. You know, the Bible The Bible's favorite term to describe Christians is not the word Christian. The word Christian is only in the Bible three times. The most common description of a Christian in the New Testament is the phrase, in Christ. Christians are those who are in Christ. They have been, by faith, united to Christ. We are 
his and he is ours. He is the head and we are the body of Christ. There is a mystical union that happens by faith, by grace, through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. We have this union and because we have union with Christ, that means we have communion with him or fellowship with him, a close personal fellowship with him. So we, even right here, we can think about worship, right? We are, we're, we're talking about being in God's presence and we pray for God's presence to be with us. Well, what we really are praying and what's really happening is that we are not here, spiritually speaking, we are being moved up, spiritually speaking, into the throne room of God. And we are worshiping there before God. We may be here in Biloxi, Mississippi, but spiritually speaking, as we are united to Christ, we are raised up into the heavenly places and our worship is there before his throne. That puts a little different spin on what we're doing here. If you're thinking, okay, I'm in the throne room of God, you know, I need to stop looking at my phone while Tim's preaching or you know, daydreaming about if the saints are winning or whatever we might be thinking about during worship. So we have the privilege of being able to have access to God in Christ by our union with Him. And that also means that we are united to the other members of the Trinity as well because there, there's one God, three persons. And we see this in several places in, in, in John, for example, where, where uh, Jesus tells us this very fact Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And then John 17 in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, referring to the disciples, his disciples, present disciples that he had on earth, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Isn't that wonderful, that last phrase? That the Father loved them even as you loved me. Even as God the Father loves God the Son, they love their people as well, equally. God loves you if you are united to Christ. And we come into his very presence and can know him in a personal relationship. He, he longs to be in that relationship with us and to commune with us. Our times of reading scripture and praying should be times of delight that God is eager to meet us there, to hear our prayers and to speak to us through his word. Hebrews 8, 11 reminds us of that, those covenant promises again, 
They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. So Jesus' representation at the, in the heavenly places at the right hand of the Father allows us to know the Lord, to have an intimate knowledge of the Lord, and to be able to walk day in and day out with a relationship with the Lord. Now, how is Jesus able to enter the holy place on our behalf? Or, or to ask it another way, how can we who are sinners enter into this relationship? Of course, it's by faith we're united to Christ, but Christ does something for us, and that brings us to the second point, or the third point, rather. It's through the sacrificial blood of Christ that we can enjoy this relationship and be part of this new covenant and inherit those promises, those better promises of the new covenant. Now, he describes for us the shortcomings of the Mosaic priesthood in this respect. 9 verse 7 points out that the high priest goes once a year. He takes blood with him for his own sins, and it says there the unintentional sins of the people. So it's a... It's a it's a sacrifice just to cover everything. You know, you may not even be aware that you have sinned, but this sacrifice that the priest was bringing uh, was just to cover all the bases on the Day of Atonement. It reminds us that, yes, we can sin unintentionally. Um, we need God's grace because sometimes we're ne never even aware that we've sinned against others and against the Lord. So you see there that, that this once-a-year sacrifice was made. He sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence was. It was an offering made to God, and he did this for his own sins and the sins of the people. And verse 9 tells us, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They, they, those sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats, could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the bodies imposed until the time of Reformation. They did something. They, they, uh, they dealt with the regulations and washings and for being cleansed, being ceremonially clean, but they didn't do anything for the conscience, the writer of Hebrews tells us. And that word conscience means awareness. It's our awareness of right and wrong. It's our moral sensitivity. What is right and what is wrong? And those sacrifices merely highlighted the fact that we were sinners, that humans were sinners. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Since the law was but a shadow, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. They cannot be made perfect. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? If you're if your slate was wiped clean by that sacrifice of the bull or the goat, then you wouldn't have to come back. You would be cleansed and, and, and nude, and you, would, you, would have, uh, you wouldn't have consciousness of sin anymore. But in these sacrifices, he says, verse 3, 
There is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They're only pointing to the true form, to the true reality, Jesus Christ. And that's where we come to the second sub, the second sub point, the fullness and finality of Christ's sacrifice. It tells us there that when in verse 11 of 9, chapter 9, back there, um, when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. So Jesus enters into that place, that heavenly place, that holy place, to the Father with his own blood. And when he did, he secured an eternal redemption. Not just a yearly coverall, but, a etern- but an eternal redemption. He paid the price. That word redemption is, refers to paying the price for something. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, we need an inward cleaning, and that's that promise of a new heart. A new heart, the new covenant promise. He's going to purify the conscience from dead works, from all the works that we do that are dead, that lead to death. And we are going to be able to serve the living God because we have been cleansed. Look at chapter 10, verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Jesus does not need to be sacrificed again and again. Only once. Verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The Old Testament priests never sat down. They had a rotational system because there was a constant stream of sacrifices and sacrifices and sacrifices, daily sacrifices, weekly sacrifices, monthly sacrifices, and then the yearly sacrifice, of course. And so there's a continually standing of the priests in the Old Testament economy. But in the New Testament, with Jesus Christ, he offered himself once for all a single sacrifice, and he sat down because the work was finished. Praise God. And now he's just waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. I love verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's an astounding statement when you think about it. That he has, by his death, by his sacrifice... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those whom he's working on, who he's making more and more holy. He has cleansed them, perfected them for all time. Now, that doesn't mean we're automatically going to be perfect. 
But in, in, in our relationship with God, we are viewed as perfect because of Christ's sacrifice and that he is there at the right hand of the Father continually advocating for us with his wounds. We sing it when we sing the song. Five bleeding wounds he bears, bore on Calvary. They, they pour effectual prayers for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. Jesus' sacrifice guarantees us a new heart and forgiveness and mercy. Those other new covenant promises that Jesus gave to us. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God that we can be cleansed in our conscience. We sinners. It's astounding. Now let's apply this briefly. We've already looked at this the the last the the application in the last few or not the last verses of uh, chapter 10 verse 19 that we read for our call to worship. This is what he's been talking about, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, we can enter the holy place united with Christ by the blood of Jesus that once for all sacrifice for our sins, we can have confidence to come into God's presence. It's by the new and the living way. It's a new way. It's the new covenant. It's a living way. It's the way of life. And he opened it up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. You remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross. There was several phenomena that occurred, as told us in Matthew 27. One of the things that happened was that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies where the priest only went once a year, it was torn from top to bottom. Now this curtain was more like a, a, a linen wall. It was thick, and it hung there in the curtain. But when Jesus died, it was torn from top to bottom, showing that the way has been opened for access to God through Christ's sacrifice. And that's what he's saying here. We can have confidence now to come into God's presence We have a great high priest over the house of God, so therefore, let us draw near. Don't stay far away. Draw near to the Lord. Draw near in faith. Come to Jesus. Come to the Lord. Have communion with him. And I'm not just talking about the table communion. I'm talking about a relationship with him. He invites you. If you come to him, he will not cast you out. He loves you as he sprinkles you clean from an evil conscience and washes us, we can come into his presence. Don't give up. That's the second thing he says. First, draw near. Secondly, don't give up. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. All these promises he's going to keep. And uh, we can enjoy communion with him from afar, in a, in a sense here, but we will one day be face to face. We will sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb and the Lord will sit with us and we will know Him. You know, people talk about dying and seeing their loved ones. 
But the true delight of being in heaven is to see the Lord and to worship Him, to delight in His presence and to to know Him as we we are known. So hold fast that confession, that hope that we have. And in the meantime, let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We need one another. We need the body of Christ to encourage us because we get discouraged. It's hard. Keep meeting together. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near, that day when Jesus will return for his people to bring us home to himself. If you're today, you don't, you've never embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would encourage you to do so. Draw near to him. Come to Jesus. Embrace him as your Lord and Savior. And it's a covenant relationship, as I started off saying. A uh, covenant relationship. He has made promises. He is reaching out. May we have that level of commitment that we are, we are united to him by faith. And we're, that's our commitment. That's our relationship that we need to work on and that we need to make a priority in our lives, just like we do in our marriages. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's what you'll see when you taste him, that he's good. May the Lord grant us a deeper faith in that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we, we thank you for your word and that we, what a blessing this is, that we can have access to you and have uh, a relationship with you and be cleansed and have confidence to come before you, the holy God who, when, when you've appeared in form to people, they have cowered in fear. And, Lord, we know that we would do the same or even more. But, Lord, you invite us to come with confidence before you. Lord, help us to not run away or to find other things that we love more than you, but to truly embrace you and to find the joy of being in relationship with you, our creator, the very thing that we were created to do. Lord, help us to see that and to taste it and to experience it and to share it with others. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.